Welcome to Herp Talk Radio. I'm your host, Matthew, and my co-host is Peggy Detmer. Coming to you live from the Black Hills. It's Herp Talk Radio. Go. So, Peggy, how are the turtles? Oh, I had to separate uh, two of the biggest, fastest growing babies from the rest because they became uh, cannibalistic. So, uh, <laughs> oh. all of a sudden, uh, I noticed a bunch of them were afraid to get in the water. And I'm like, what's going on here? So, I, you know, I looked them over and uh, so about five of them had uh, nipped rear ends. And I'm like, uh, okay. And so, I, I uh, watched for a while and found the two offenders, the ones that didn't have nipped tails and the ones that... Uh, uh, one was uh, swimming right after another little one and and uh, was nipping at uh, what what would be the the back muscle of the the back hind leg and I'm like you know and 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 these guys are fat I mean they are fat and so I checked the temperature yeah I, I checked the temperature do I have it too hot what's going on no they're, they're at about seven you know let's say about uh, seventy eight you know degrees and you know, and everybody was telling me, keep them at 86. And, and I said, boy, if I was keeping them at 86, man, they, they'd have been eating one another sooner. <laughs> right. <man. laughs> you know? And so I, I, I put the two biggest ones that are about, you know, two and a half to three inches now uh, in with some bigger turtles and they're, they don't dare go after them. And so things are smoothed down in the baby tank and everybody's now hopping in the water and eating normally. I mean, I, I never had seen that before where all of a sudden, you know, seven of the nine were afraid to go in the water. It's like, what is going on? Right. And so, yeah, that was a new one to me. Um, you know, I never had that problem. Bullying before. is a problem. Yeah. Turtle bullying. Yeah. Mm. And so they have, you know, slightly nipped tails and then some, uh, some hooks <clears throat> out of their, you know, the, their, their back legs. And That's so I had to really feed, feed them. And I can't believe how fast they're healing. I mean, this was you know, about four days ago and they're already healing really well. And Good. so it's, uh, that same stuff that the doctor gave me to heal. Um, what was it? Uh, shell rot that we found in that, uh, wild female. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's really making those, uh, the legs seal up really well and, and keeping everything. What are you using? Um, it's a, a silver solution that you clean it with first, let that, you know, then you, you, let them dry dock on a paper towel uh -huh. and uh, I can run and grab the formula for it. Once we, we get off here, okay. it, um, exactly what the name of it and then let letting that dry. And it, it really seems to contract the wound really well. And then, nice. then there's a, the sil the, the salve that you put on it and that keeps mm -hmm. it from um, uh, getting wet. You know, it, it, it keeps a kind of like an emollient seal from the water. And man, is that, okay. that healing up fast. But I never had to deal with shell nice. Yeah, I never had to deal with shell rot. And then I found that female that we were just going to help cross the road. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is, she's got uh, shell mm. rot, you know, really through, you know, in, in the bone. And one particular hole looked like it was going to go into the body cavity. So I brought her to the vet. Mm. I go, you know, never had to deal with shell rot. I keep my water really clean. And he goes, well, I'll teach you how to, you know, treat this. And you got to. You know, keep her for a few weeks, but she's full of eggs. Let's pop her with oxy, and you know, hence all the baby turtles. <laughs> she was a big female, and uh, you know, so what species? Uh, Western painted. And, oh, nice! And so, um, and she's the 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 babies are the ones that I'm working with a biologist at Custer State Park, 
that we're going to release um, these on video and make it a public uh, interest story that, you know, we, oh, nice. you know, even get on local TV and, you know, uh, nice. you know local volunteers that are helping with the non-game species. And, uh, and so it, it's going to, it's going to be a fun story. So, nice. Yeah. That's, that's nice. been my big news and big learning experience is how to deal with piranha turtles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I've grown the, uh, got my rat colony, I think. Finally, at a size to produce enough for what I've got, which which is a good step. We started the rat colony like idiots. If you're going to start breeding rats and you have more than three snakes, do not get a pair of rats. That is not enough rats. About a three to one yeah, ratio. Yeah, you did. No, a pair of rats is not enough rats to sustain to sustain snakes. Mind you, I no. think that was smart on our end. Like, oh, we don't need to rush into rats and have way too many, so let's just get a pair. But you know, no, no, that doesn't work. There's something called a freezer. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> no, you can just freeze. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just euthanize the ones you don't need. I don't get the problem. Or sell them. You can sell them pretty well. I, I supported the family on rats. Heck. Wow, make a lot of rats. Yeah, we we produce a thousand a, a week for years, and we but we use seven hundred of them every week. Wow, that's kind of my yeah. want overall is to to get into rat breeding and kind of make that the staple of which builds the reptiles um, even more. Because honestly, like <clears throat> if it were up to me, I'd have diamond <laughs> pythons. Um, but diamond pythons are a grand a piece and. You right. know, I don't, I don't got that kind of money. Not for a <laughs> snake, anyway. You know, that's sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'd, I, I'd like to do the rats and the mice. I don't know about the mice. I like rats. I really like rats. <laughs> yeah, rats are cool. They're super sweet. Able, and super nice. Yes, I would be able to euthanize them. <laughs> they just go to sleep. Yeah, just, I've never liked that part of the of the of the deal. It's but. not enjoyable, but. If uh, I guess the way I think of it is if it's coming down to that rat attacking my snake and making my snake die because it's alive versus dead. Right. I yeah. might as well kill it instead of putting the snake in harm. There you go. There you yeah. go. That's that's the way that I've rationalized it in my head. So yeah. <laughs> well, anyway. there's, so, there's so many people on the Rapid City reptile list that are looking for feeders. Always. Always. Exactly. It's a it's a viable business. It is. Yeah. It's a good model too. Get, get get once you've got your own feeders handled, everything else is surplus that will help you then, you know, maintain your colony and or expand it. Right. Yeah. Right. That's uh, right. That's kind of the mo over here. We're just going slow. But it can, it can become a full time job, so you got to watch out yeah, for that. Yeah, that's what we're trying to yeah. avoid. Also, we don't have like an outbuilding for our rodents, so we're trying to mm. keep it super small, so our house doesn't right. smell like rodents. Um, yeah, I've had, I've had that issue. <laughs> <laughs> well, this week we have we have Alan Bosch back. Um, very excited to have you back. Very excited to Thank call you. your friend of the podcast, actually. And yeah, yeah I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm proud to be a friend of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it, tell us what's going on new in, in the in your reptile world, Al. Oh. Uh, just uh, starting to move into 
spring, you know, spring-like weather. Of course, it's it snowed for the first time in 20 years here, so two days ago. Yeah, so I, I saw guess, that on Instagram. Yeah. Saw, it was pretty weird. Yeah, we, I could look out the window and see snow on, on the hills. Uh, didn't snow at this elevation, uh, which is we're about 75 feet above um, sea level. Oh. Because we're only about we're only about seven miles from the coast. Nice. Um, you know how California is. It goes coast and mountains and, <laughs> yeah. you know. I mean, it doesn't take long to be in the mountains. Uh, other than that, things are starting to move toward, you know, spring. Um, all the daffodils are up. The irises wow. are pushing up. Yeah, uh, we, yeah, yeah, the daffodils are probably up on the last week of their being, they're blooming. All the, all the rose uh, family, you know, trees, the apples and crab apples and peaches, they're all blooming. Um, hopefully they don't get shocked by an early frost or a late frost. Um, but I'm looking forward to, you know, some more babies coming out this year. Uh, out of your turtles or snakes? I have zero snakes. I'm never going to be able to have a, any more than one or two snakes at a time anymore. Oh. My wife just won't put up with it. And when you had, <laughs> we had 700, you know, it got a little oh, crazy. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a little much. That's a little much. And they, you know, all, almost all of them were ball pythons, which was cool. Uh, we had some, we did have some other interesting snakes. We've had, Cobras, black and green mambas, uh, 17, 18-foot uh, anacondas, green anacondas, and African rock pythons and retics. Oh, man. And pretty much everything in between. And we made that into an exhibit. But, you know, they, they, they come with their own liabilities. Yeah. We, oh, my God. We just did yeah. a Venomous episode last, well, we recorded like four days ago, but last week um, mm-hmm. with Phil Wolf down in Miami. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. He worked at Underground, and then he was the venomous okay. importer at Strictly for a while too. Okay. So, yeah, we just, that's an interesting place. Strictly Reptiles. Yeah. You ever been down there? I no. haven't. No. It's a trip. It's 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 a he trip. Was, he was telling us you'll have to listen to it, but he was telling us at Strictly, the venomous tubs was like envision a normal snake rack, except for the the tubs have lids and they stack too high and then slide in. Okay. And then That's that right. was the venomous rack. So he had yep. to find a way. He had to find a way to get those two tubs out. The, without, yeah, them. without locking lids on them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was cool yeah. stories. Yeah. <laughs> so that reminds me. We, I, I told this story, and I don't know. It was it, the summer of '78, <clears throat> Al, when um, you were with the forest. You were working for the Forest Service, customer. right? And uh-huh. uh, my wildlife team member. Uh, Carrie, I'll just say his first name. He got that snake latched onto his leg. Were you with us that day that we were? Um, uh, I don't have a memory of that, so probably not. Walking those transits, yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, Carrie got um, step. What you know, we were stepping on sticks, and then you know how sticks would pop up and snap you in the boot or whatever. Sure. And sure. at this time, none of us were wearing snake gaiters because we were up at an elevation where you didn't expect to encounter a rattler. And uh, yeah, and, and one latched. Uh, one snake popped up and, and latched onto Carrie. It looked like his leg, but luckily it, it just got its fangs caught in his jeans. And oh, thank goodness! Yeah, and so I didn't know if we, if you were one of the big guys that grabbed him and because he was so paranoid about snakes and held him. Why I I grabbed the snake's head and 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 its body so it wouldn't um, wrap around my wrist and i threw the snake and everybody why didn't you kill it <laughs> so i go right, oh, well yeah I, I thought maybe you were there that day because you know i don't think so summer. i don't think so 
I remember most of my venomous snake encounters. I don't recall that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I figured if you were there, you'd have beat me to grab off of his leg. <laughs> Probably. <right. laughs> yeah, yeah I've had, had a little bit of experience with those little boogers. Yeah, well, I didn't. And all, all, all I thought is, okay, I'll, I'll grab it the way I saw people you know, grabbing up you know, when they milked them. Right. You know, and it right. thankfully worked. I mean, because we, we would have had a long trip down off that mountainside and Mm-hmm. We were, you know, walking that timber, and yeah. <laughs> so I said, "Ah, oh, yeah." So, what story were you going to tell us? Yeah, uh, before we hit. Oh, um, my my aunt Michelle um, is an artist, uh, a sculptor. Oh, like you. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever told you. It's kind of a funny story. I saw her. She's she's uh, the last um, lucid uh, member of my mother's family uh, she there were 12 siblings uh, 11 went to um, you know adulthood uh, and this is like you know from children being born in the 20s and early 30s and uh, Aunt Michelle's still sharp as a tack and she's like 89 years old and she's she told me a story about one of her students um, they were just you know, casually sculpting something and uh, he mentioned that he was into snakes. And she says, oh, my nephew is into uh, snakes. And he says, what kind? And she said, ball pythons. And what's his name? Uh, Alan Bosch. He goes, the Alan Bosch. <laughs> <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well, that's, so, that's what we were getting. I'm like, Al? Goofy Al? Everybody's been telling <laughs> what? how much of a star <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh, gosh. In the reptile. Well. Uh, you're in it long enough that you know you're either you're well known or you're you're famous, you're infamous. I think I'm more infamous than anything else. <laughs> well, you certainly were in the Forest Service. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, so uh, that was a fun, fun little story, similar story. You know, just out of nowhere, <laughs> the Alan Bosch. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, well that's, cool. that's good, though. I mean. You, I, I feel like it's just a matter of time in the hobby because like if you've been around for 20 years then you end up getting to know everybody you know eventually. pretty much so i think it's just time yeah and, we, and i also got in at a time um when almost nobody was in i mean um the barkers hadn't even met each other yet Oh, Gracie was working at the uh, the aquarium in, in Baltimore, and um, Dave started working there. They met and got got interested in each other, and and they knew so little about. Forgive me, Barkers, for revealing this, but they knew so little about uh, incubating uh, Bolin's pythons. And when a gravid female came in, they gave it to Pete Call, and Pete had set up an incubator in his closet in his town had townhouse in uh, Parkville, Maryland. And hatched out the first um, Bowen's pythons that way. Oh, wow. Right? Wow. That was kind of cool. And the Barkers have come quite a way since then. Obviously, you know, volume one and two, Pythons of the World. Yeah. Uh, it is a you know mainstay. But they've, they've got some great, they're great people. And they've got some great stories. Uh, Dave, especially from some of his field work, you know, hunting retics. And uh, I think it was in the Philippines wow. where he, uh, he realized how crazy it was to go out at night in a jungle trail carrying a chicken on your head as you crossed through uh, crocodile infested water to get to the next, you know, to the other side. So you could then bait a trap to catch a giant retic. Oh. And then he, <laughs> yeah, right. 
in the dark, these guys are going down trails where there are 20 foot, they're looking for 20 and 30 foot ambush predators by being the prey. Wow. <laughs> Not purposely, yeah. it was there. Yeah, right. Crazy stuff. Well, uh, 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 if you're in contact with them, uh, give us a, a, a good word oh. for him to be on our show. <laughs> or that you, know, you know who every- might be on your guys' show? Um, you guys know Sean Hefleck? That no. doesn't ring a bell. He's, he's big into crocodilians. Um, he was one of the three guys who did that Python Hunter show. Oh. Greg Graziani, Michael Cole, and, and Sean Hefleck. And Sean and I stay in constant contact. Uh, I just sent him some, uh, uh, we'll call it maple syrup. You know, we make it here at the brewery. Uh, <laughs> but you, can, you can't ship what we make here at the brewery to Florida. So I sipped the maple syrup. Oh. So he got some maple syrup for me very recently. Uh, he's really, he's a real interesting guy. He, he's one of the first guys to uh, reproduce albino alligators in captivity. Oh, okay. I bet I've yeah, seen uh, him on YouTube then. Um, Probably. He's a nice guy. He, so he, yeah, he and Michael Cole and Greg Graziani were in the right place at the right time. And they got, they were supposed to go out in the Everglades. You know, the whole, whole premise was they would go into the Everglades and, and they would round up all the uh, thousands, the millions, you know, of, of uh, errant uh, ball pythons or, you know, pretexts in, in Burmese that were decimating the, the Everglades and they just couldn't find enough. So they ended up spending three years getting sent all over the world hunting pythons in South America. Of course, no pythons there. But, you know, they, they went to Australia on the Discovery Channel's money and it was very a lot of fun so he i'm sure he's got a million stories <laughs> yeah would, well thanks for the recommendation yeah man i'll 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 i'll, I'll touch base with him see what he thinks yeah, yeah that'd be fun he's a good guy he's, he's he's real big into um education and spreading the word i love talking about crocodilians oh, i love crocodilians they're super cool yeah they're they so cool they taste good <laughs> 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 they, do, they do taste pretty good. Hey, I'm they gonna build taste. you a pond, and we're gonna put a caiman in it. <clears throat> That's the yeah, deal. Yeah. I'll do it for free if I can have a caiman. <laughs> oh, like yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's plenty of space. Uh. Yeah. For I don't think homeowners little... insurance would cover that. <laughs> <laughs> no. You gotta really be careful with those darn caiman. Um. The, the you know they look like they're doing fine. When they're in water below like sixty degrees, but they actually aren't. Uh, Spectacle games, especially. I mean, they they, they end up getting uh, septus in their muscles and wow. just dying a real slow, terrible death. So yeah, you got to really keep them warm. Yeah, well, see, they are from like the Amazon, so that would make yeah sense. Yeah, <laughs> spectacles are. I don't know why spectacles are especially um, uh, susceptible to the temperature change but palpabrosis um aren't as much it's just the spectacles um i had about a seven footer just wasn't doing well and then we figured out why uh and the, the palpabrosis no problem hmm. interesting yeah so when when do you think uh al your turtles will start laying eggs or uh, uh yeah that's a good question let's talk about your that's a great question a little bit what do you got going on over there Oh, just, um, I actually meant to, to bring one of the little 
uh, Azanthix to show you guys, but uh, of course I, was, I ran out the door you might, too quickly while I was thinking. You might be the first person um, to talk me into buying turtles if you've got one that's... Uh... <laughs> yeah, they're really cool. I mean, coal black eyes, like leucistic eyes, and uh, the, the, the shells are gray, the, the skin is gray. Ooh. Really neat looking. Um, you know, red-eared sliders are kind of the dumb... I think they're the dumbest turtles in the world. I don't know why. I had... They were laying eggs in the water a month ago. Oh, wow. You know, the water's like sixty degrees. So what the heck's going on there? Did you try? Uh, uh, did you put them in an incubator? I tried. Yeah, it, they must not have been fertile, or they were had drowned by the time I got to them. Uh, um, but I expect them to start crawling up and and you know, de- depositing um, eggs probably in about uh, I would say probably early June in in Florida. They're usually laying in mid-June. Um, California is about the same. Uh, but, you know, I've had them laid almost every month of the year. It's hard to tell sometimes. And, and you have them indoors right now in, in those um, uh, wood, wood-lined ponds, you said? I have, um, I have four to five, six different uh, setups. Uh, two of them are unheated outside. That's where the adults are. And they're, I mean, it's not unheated. I just, I have it so they won't get below 60. Um, but then I have um, two inside that are at normal temperature. And that's with some of the subadults and, and uh, the yearlings and the, and the hatchlings. And then I have a large plywood, uh, three foot by eight foot by 12 inches. And that's heated uh, at 72 degrees. And they're all growing in there. And that's a big mix of... Uh, albinos and hets and het clowns and het albinos and blah, 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 you know, all those. Mostly hets, mostly normal looking <laughs> um, with with all the genes that we're going to find out, you know, yeah. ex- which ones are going to express themselves. Yeah. That's the fun part. Yeah, because that, that's what I'm learning um, from, uh, like, Mike Ipanovich um, was that they, they enjoy mixing all the genes together to see – you know, what comes out. It's not like, hey, here's this morph and then here's that morph. They're combining all the morphs into really interesting, odd-looking turtles and mostly all with the uh, red ear sliders. Yeah, the red ear is obviously the, the turtle of choice just by sheer number of production, you know, the ones that will shoot. Um, I think when I first got into red ear slider, we used to we used to sell them in Myrtle Beach, for like four years, we sold them to the beach stores, you know, and, and it all started so innocently. But when we first started, there were, I think, 73 farms in Louisiana. And then the Chinese started buying the turtles like crazy. And the next thing you know, there's like 170 farms in Louisiana. And then the Chinese got enough. And then now there's, you know, way less than that because the, well, the farms failed because the Chinese weren't buying anymore. When we first got into it, Myrtle Beach was more of a uh, more of a, a rescue situation. We just, you know, every every single sign you would pass would say "live hermit crabs, live turtles," and you go in and they'd just be in horrendous situations, just not being taken care of, too dense, a non filtered water, and you know, selling those little tiny lagoons, yeah. little, little turtle death traps, right? So we <laughs> we 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 opened up a couple of accounts and. Uh, we, you know, printed out uh, 
repair sheets and made their fil- you know, filtered their water and gave them 100% guarantee. Next thing you know, we've got 42 customers and um, we're selling 42,000 turtles in a summer in 12 weeks. Wow. Right? Right. So that was my wife's job. She, uh, she, 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 she built it up. She had a great little thing. And then, of course, one vet decided to blow the whistle. And that's how the feds handled it. You know, that, that whole four-inch law was uh, it's a federal law, but it's enforced by the states. So the states don't say anything. We don't say anything. Well, somebody said something in South Carolina, and the whole business went to zero in one week. Oh. So that was kind of a... Oh, man. Well, when you were... But it was... Uh, when you, go ahead. When you were producing that many, did you see any, you know, crop-out morphs at that time? Oh, we didn't produce those at all. Oh. We, uh, we had a turtle farm in Thibodeau. Uh, Louisiana that was sending them to us uh, 500 to a box. They would just fly them into Myrtle beach and we'd pick them up that morning and distribute them. It was a fun time. Wow. My wife and did it with our daughters. And, um, you know, if I could make it, she would, she would go up there and spend the night and they'd have a great time. You know, we'd have seven or eight grand in our pocket. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> You know, I hear from the, the, the turtle breeders that um, they've got a network in on from some of the remaining farms that some mm. of these morphs show up and they know mm-hmm. what breeders to call to sell their morphs. Yeah. You know, their, um, I don't know, their spontaneous mutations or, or what they are. Um, but yeah, that's uh, what the network is. And that's uh, where, where you went on, you're like, hey, you want this clown that just showed up and, you know, anything like that? No, I, I, I really only got into turtles about six years ago at the level that I'm doing it now. Uh, I did that with ball pythons. I had trappers in, in Africa. Um, Noah was a, was probably the prominent Ghanaian uh, who would keep in touch. Uh, but I was I was still like, I was below Pete. I was below, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Ralph, you know. Yeah. Um, those guys got the calls first, and they usually snatched them up. Were you ever like but, at the importer's place going through them? I actually hitchhiked to uh, to Africa. Whole another story. This is, yeah, this is. I got I got I got to uh, I got to England on frequent flyer miles, and I got from England to Ghana, uh, in the jumper seat of a seven oh seven. A friend of mine, my brother's partner in his chiropractic business best friend from high school owned an airline. Wow. Um, his name is, his name is Mike Kruger, MK airlines. And he would fly electronics from Europe into Ghana and Nigeria. And then he would load up these empty planes with produce and fly back to Europe. And that's how he just cycled it. And he had English and he had Romanian crews. And, uh, so I got on board. It was free. I just had to wait around for you know, to find out if there was anybody sitting in the jumper seat. And I sat right behind the pilot. It was like sitting in a rocket. I mean, taking off. It was it was wild. Um, and then you fly over the, the Sahara Desert at 550 miles an hour for like three hours. Nothing but sand. <laughs> Insane how much, you know, desert there is up there. And you drop in. It's like four in the morning. You get and you walk out of the, the plane. It's like 105 degrees at four in the morning in April. I'm thinking, what am I doing? <laughs> and but then we, uh, my host, who was the third largest um, exporter of ball pythons, uh, what they what they would do was they would sell each other their licenses, and they would gather up, you know, licenses because you were only allowed 
each license had like a quota and there were 20, 25 licenses. And there were really only three or four people who controlled all those licenses because they bought everybody else's quota. So they could ship out not just 3000, which each approximately each license allowed, they would be shipping out 50, 60, 80,000 uh, ball pythons. So I got to look through tens of thousands of ball pythons and I picked out all these really cool ones. And I even had, uh, I paid, uh, next to nothing for these, but there were triplets, three, three snakes. They weren't bigger than garter snakes. And they all had three different patterns. They all came out of one little egg. They were so cool. Um, and they all got confiscated by the European union. Oh, oh man. Yeah. That was a bummer. Yeah. That was a bummer. Um, and I ended up, uh, luckily I told my host, the person who, um, who was uh, shipping them out for me that she needed to insure them, which she failed to do. So she ended up having to cover it herself. And instead of snakes, I got 800 kilograms of, uh, sulcatus shipped oh, to me. Yeah. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> I keep talking Matthew out of getting the sulcata because, <laughs> They'll go through water. Oh, my gosh. They're just bulldozers. <laughs> yeah. You cannot keep them in a fenced area. They will just plow through. There was a red foot available in Spearfish, actually. Um, oh. And Kelly oh, looked yeah, at me, and I looked at her, and she was like, no. I'm like, you can't, I can't tell you not to get reptiles, because uh, <laughs> I expect you not to tell me anything when it comes <laughs> to the snakes. <laughs> Just yes, that right. looks cool. No, it doesn't. We don't need that. <laughs> yeah. so, Redfoots don't get too big, so that they're they're much more manageable. Yeah, we didn't go for it. We just don't have the room for a tortoise. Like yeah. tortoise redfoots, you can actually let roam around your house, and you can literally litter train them. Hmm. That might really? be a good idea. Yeah, no, with what with just warm water. Uh, basically, you find one spot where you can you know eventually put paper, but you start out with a. a basin like a cat litter tray of warm water and uh, at the same time every day maybe multiple times a day you lift the tortoise up and you put him in the water and then you know they usually evacuate at that point and then you, you know you just keep doing it of course over and over again then eventually you take away uh the tray and just have the newspaper and they get it they associate the spot with it and believe it or not there's a guy in pikesville when i was like in 13 years old who did this with iguanas. Uh, he even taught the iguanas and he lived on a corner lot. So he had streets on two sides of his four sided lot and they would not leave his property. He taught them, they, he taught them the edge of the property. They would scratch on the door to get out and scratch on the door to get in. And, and what type and of iguana was this? Just, just plain old green iguanas. Wow. And he did this back in the, in the early seventies, late sixties. Those wow. are big lizards though. They are big. Yeah. Yes, he had some really good tricks. He taught me how to take care of uh, chameleons. Nobody really knew how water hydration, uh, you know, uh, needy they were. Uh, he was the first one of the first people to get uh, Jacksons to live beyond, you know, two weeks. And he taught me how to get uh, really hard to eat lizards to eat. He said, "All you do is distract them." He would stick, uh, he would force their mouth open and stick the food in. They, you know, these wild caught animals would just sit there with the, the food in their mouth, right? But then he would put them on their shoulder. And as he spun around in the 360, he just basically rotated his body. They would start looking to the side, and then they forget, and they go into a reflexive eating. Oh, wow. 
That's very and he got, he got all these animals that wouldn't eat to eat. Wow. Now, where you're at, are you more humid or more dry? Dry. It's Mediterranean. We're in Napa, near Napa. Um, 700 wineries out here. So it's more, you know, dry. We only, we get rain in the winter and that's it. And then eight, seven, eight months, zero rain. Well, except for this year. <laughs> well, it's in the winter time. Yeah. It's, it's normal to be getting the amount we got. We just got a lot in a very short amount of time. Those 12 storms in 21 days were insane. Uh, but the total rainfall so far this year is actually slightly, slightly behind. But we've had three years where we had almost no rain, so it was it was it's good to have some, but it's it's, it's kind of a pain that took us. Yeah. What are you going to do? So now, um, if you were to get tortoises, would you switch then to dryland tortoise or try to keep you know the the humid redfoots in that sort of area? Oh, uh, I would probably go. I'd lean toward the dryland tortoises because um, you can keep them dry in a wet area but it's harder to keep them wet in a dry area yeah um right and and given that the wetness is almost all winter you know from october through um late march uh it's cold anyway so you probably have to you know keep them sheltered and and heated supplementally you know versus um just leaving them outside year-round although i know a guy a famous guy he used to uh you may have heard of him his name's terry reed he had a deal with Tetramen for about 20 years where he produced iguana food, Terry Reed's iguana chow, right? And he keeps his redfoots in pits uh, four feet deep year-round in North Carolina. Hmm. Yeah, isn't that crazy? No, yeah, uh, yeah, not to mention how much fun is it jumping in a pit to take care of your animals? It's <laughs> yeah, uh, not very right? interactive. Yeah, not very, but uh, he, you know, this, he, this guy did all kinds of really interesting experiments to determine, you know, uh, metabolic bone disease and whether or not uh, lizards could metabolize vitamin D without sunshine. And he, and they can, apparently. So certain lizards, at least iguanas can. So by their diet or, mm-hmm. okay. Uh, he raised some in normal conditions with sunshine. He raised some in complete darkness. And he was able to keep them healthy in complete darkness uh, just by making sure they had, uh, you know, uh, nutritional uh, sources of vitamin D, not, not necessarily that, you know, having it uh, stimulated by the sunshine. So that was interesting. Yeah, that, is- that goes on to something that I, I heard, like, like the UVB, UVA discussion, if it's important or if it's not. There are very prominent people reading monitors right now who do not have UVB or UVA and they are producing hundreds of lizards every month or every year with a little bulb from Walmart. Right. Does that mean we need it? Well, if the standard is are getting <clears throat> it to breed, then, then yeah, we've succeeded, but I think we need to look a little further than can we get it to breed because... Uh, Humans will breed in subpar conditions. So <laughs> yeah, maybe we well. should change our standard just a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think partly it's going to be species specific. Hundred percent. Yeah, uh, monitors. I would. I'm a little surprised. I th- I think um, most uh, Australian species of at least bearded dragons uh, are dependent on UVB, but I'm I'm not absolutely convinced that they are. Well, I and I 
you know, after encountering this turtle with um, shell rod, you know, to me, it's, I don't know mm. how they can, I, I know the UVA and UVB kill, um, I mean, this turtle had both um, fungal and bacterial infection that I was treating. And so, you know, the, the UVA and UVB usually help heal that up. And, you know, sometimes they'll come out of hibernation with fungal and bacterial infections because they've been under the ice, you know, um, right. their metabolism is slower, so they can't fight off infections. And, right. and so, you know, it's not just a matter of bone disease. It's also, from what I would think, um, it, it's a matter of, you know, warding off Know, microbial parasites and you know and and i don't you know, I, and I, i'm not familiar with lizards and snakes or so what can get underneath their scales you know like do they have mite or lice or your devices are not responding oh, oh no Entries. not again oh, no, it's okay i told i told him this time okay. i'm just <laughs> all right we're good <laughs> Like this is why we got you back so soon. I right? Mean. No, we're good. We're good this time. Um, you know, you know what? I, you know what I find interesting. Um, all of us recognize uh, how individual humans are and our response to environmental stimuli, uh, everything, right? And yet, even people who are deep into you know taking care of animals like we are. We tend to think of like a species as just being universal, uniform, you know, like all red foots are the same. All red air sliders are the same. Therefore, they all metabolize the same. They're just as much individualistic as we are, right? right. So you get strong, you get weak, you get, you know, yeah. you know, vigorous ones. You get, you know, you just get ones that just aren't going to make it. And it's especially apparent with hatchlings. Yeah. You know, hatchlings really, really show you, you know, the mortality rate. But once they get to a certain point, you know, they're pretty much indestructible. You know, the one thing that I noticed was um, once I started getting the, the more expensive UVA and UVB bulbs, uh, my turtles started shedding their scoots more normally as if they were outdoors. You know, usually I, I mm. wait for, you know, for them to get outside to really shed their scoots properly. And then so then I did more reading on UVA and and just like with humans, it, it increases the, the capillary width of um, that UVA does. And so it increases the circulation to their mm. shells, which then brings more nutrients there, which then helps them build up the, the scoots and then, and then shed, shed off the old ones. And I said, Oh, well, makes sense. Yeah. So I, for makes me, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll say I'm biased. Like, man, if the more you can keep everything at a more natural level, um, right. They, they well, evolve millions of years to be in this sort of environment and to thrive in that sort of environment. But, you know, so I am surprised to hear that people are successful in creating breeding colonies without natural, you know, uh, well, light. I guess, I guess a good way to think about it would be like you <coughs> a breeding colony of humans locked in a room with just normal <coughs> lights and no natural sunlight and they're going to breed and produce just fine. You know, like <laughs> humans would like, why wouldn't they? Um, but if you gave them an outside courtyard and access to natural sunlight, they would probably act a little different and enjoy life a little better. So well, it's, not about, 
it's not about the minimum standard, which is what we've always tried to hit. It's about adapting to more. Yeah, I mean, sense. if you have a, a human female away from natural light um, for you know any decent time, she's going to get osteoporosis, and her her pelvis will crack right. as she delivers. <laughs> there will be problems, right? but it's possible. <laughs> I mean, you could get you would viably if you had a group, you know. Some would make it, some wouldn't. It's the same thing, you know. <laughs> like, I think Hitler tried that. We're gonna we're gonna st- steer away from those experiments. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I'm not saying let's do it, but no, no, of course not. <laughs> yeah, right. So it's already pretty much been done. I mean, we we all uh, have you guys ever uh, studied that National Geographic study they did on the genome about 20 years ago, where they took cheek swabs. From three hundred and seventy-five thousand people, oh. and then uh, identified all the genetic markers, and it turns out that there's actually, except for a very small group of of, uh, of um, Native Africans, uh, we all evolved from one scientific Eve and one scientific Adam. Oh yeah, all of us. Yeah, you can see, you see all the genetic markers, just like you know, they they follow them and they just go all over the map, but they all end up in the old Divide Gorge. Yeah, they all end up right there. Yeah. Uh, so you know, when we migrated out of Africa and started heading north, we had to become light skinned in order to get enough vitamin D production. You know, or you didn't make it if you were above a certain latitude, right? You have to you would, you would die out, and therefore you wouldn't reproduce. So this whole experiment's already been done over the last <laughs> four million years. Yep, yeah, yeah, and Joel and I had just watched uh, a, a special, you know, the the bottleneck of humanity in uh, the southern tip of Africa um, about seventy thousand years ago, due to uh, a volcanic um, creating mm. um, just you know, uh, years of a volcanic um, winter. And uh, so the, mm. the only humans that survived um, were around there, and, and they they survived. They, they weren't eating crops. A lot of um, they were mostly eating, you know, seafoods. Um, mm. But even um, the life in the oceans were diminished too at that time. And I can't remember sure. which volcano it was that had. Uh, uh, Joel thinks it was Toba um, that went off at that time. But yeah, that, that was that. That led to that bottleneck of that one Eve and that one, you know, Adam. Uh, Scientific Adam. Yeah, so it, it was it was quite interesting that um, it is apparently our the human the Homo sapien population was they estimate as low as ten thousand at one point. Uh, yeah, some were even saying we, two thousand. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah, we 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 almost, we almost came like the dinosaurs because of. Uh, yeah, the, the, that one environmental. Yeah, and so and so here we go again. <laughs> here we go again. Yeah, that, that's the one. Here we go again. Yeah, and, and um, you know, I, I keep track of my German relatives and and Netherlands, and you know, they're uh, they're pilot towns. They're they're making three hundred to five hundred percent more energy than they need. Um, right. Um, by just solar and wind. Um, right. on everybody's house in these pilot villages and and Germany isn't as sunny as you know we have you know as, as many sunny days as we have in America so I mean right they're fairly far north yeah I mean we really need to snap in on that so we don't go the way of the dodo <laughs> well there are certain groups or people 
that I wouldn't mind seeing go dodo wise. Uh, but, but as a species, I, I'm for I'm all I'm all for saving us. Yeah. <laughs> you read the most. Have you read the most recent um, analysis of why the dodo went extinct? It apparently, it wasn't from overeating by humans. They were just destined to be wiped out. Apparently, oh, because I- they were wiped out. There, there are actually three different species of dodos. The main, the one we mainly know, um, you know, is, is the big bird. But there were two other ones. They all went extinct at about the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sure. saw the National Geographic notice on that, and I had, didn't get it around to uh, to reading it. So why did they go extinct? Uh, I think it was mainly predation by, uh, you know, rats, because uh, they weren't very good about, you know, building nests and so on. But the evidence was, was not... In, uh, Leaning toward human uh, predation as more toward you know, other environmental uh, things like rats, you know, that came aboard, and then of course jumped ship and wreaked havoc like they do everywhere. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll have to look at that uh, article. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> well, uh, so, so are there are there any turtles, L, that you um, want to acquire? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I really want, well, I don't know if I'll ever do it because uh, it requires settling down too much. Um, I'd like to get a breeding colony of alligator snappers going. Um, and I can't convince my wife to move to Louisiana. So I don't think we're going to have any of those. But I'm, I may end up getting one or two small albinos or leucistics. They're just so cool. They are very just neat. beautiful animals. And I just, I, they're, they're, like, they're like the bridge between turtles and crocodilians, those big snapping turtles, those big alligator snappers. It gets so big, and they live for so long. And, and I found out the most interesting thing a few years ago from the, uh, the head curator, Scott Paff, up at the Columbia Zoo in South Carolina. You know what their main um, diet is in, uh, once they reach like 30 pounds or so? Hmm. Acorns. Really? Eat a ton of acorns. And they gain about a pound a year once they reach 30 pounds. And the biggest one I ever caught was 330 pounds. So do the math. That's a 300-year-old animal. Yeah. Isn't, that, isn't that crazy? That Acorns is. and 300-year-old snapping turtles. I wonder if it, do they brumate for a long time? It depends on where they, they are. I mean, they don't occur naturally um, east uh, or they don't occur naturally um, east of... Uh, I think it's the Savannah River because um, they don't occur naturally in South Carolina, the alligator snapper, right? Uh, and they also occur in the Mississippi River drainage system as far north as St. Louis, I think. Okay. And it gets, you know, they, yeah. they get ice in the water in St. Louis, yeah. right? So uh, I'm, I'm sure they're brumating there, but I doubt that they brumate very much in Florida. Because I know, I know there's been some research done on like the Manitoba garter snakes, and they're they're mm. considered to be like one of the most long lived species, just because they're down for half the year. So yeah, like nine months yeah, of the year, they're not doing they're not anything. doing anything. So <laughs> right. So that would make sense if they're you know especially if they brumate for six months. And, right, where their heart rate's so slow, they're not even metabolizing pretty yeah, much. Yeah, right. That would make that would make a ton of sense down the. And and so why the alligator snapper, Al? Uh, I just I think they're just so cool. I mean, it was one of the first reptiles I ever focused on as a child, 
I, I lived in New Orleans and we would go to the uh, Audubon Zoo, which was a fairly progressive uh, zoo. And they had um, an alligator snapper that you, and you could view them from above. They were in a, a big, um, oh, almost like a moat. And, you know, my, my childhood imagination has it at about 7 million pounds, but I think it was realistically, realistically about three feet. And so I think it was a 200 pound plus alligator snapper. Um, and just, you know, those giant heads, you know, and, and the whole luring of, of the prey and just minimizing any activity. I mean, they put so little energy in, into, you know, securing food because they can bring it to them, right? And then uh, they just live so daggone long. Just cool. So, and what would be your market? What, who, the buyers, do you think? Oh, I probably wouldn't worry about breeding them. <laughs> you know, this one of those more yeah. crocodilians type deal. Yeah, I, I, I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's more just like for fun. At this point, my wife doesn't want us to uh, center our life around breeding animals to, to live, you know. I've got more, I'm, I'm more focused on investments and, and managing those. And, and of course, building the brewery uh, and that, and getting the proceeds off of that. So from now on, except for the turtles, um, it's pretty much just for fun. Yeah. Yay. It's where I started, you know, <laughs> it's, it's more fun when it's just for fun. I can tell you when it gets to become a seven day a week job and you do it for 20 years, you get kind of tired of it. Yeah. I don't doubt that. Yeah, especially when your kids call it, Dad, you just can't believe what happened to the rats. They blah, 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 blah. And we had to take, you know, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in Florida. I can't do anything. <laughs> and they're screaming at me. You, blank, blank, I had to take the rats and they drowned and blah, blah, blah. So it's like, okay, 24 hours a day. Uh, <laughs> it is constant. And that's, I think, something people don't, don't quite think of when they get going into it is... Yeah, any animals, really. I mean, horses. All right, yeah, well, twenty-four-seven. That's why we sold the horses, and and uh, and why you know I told Joel just you know this week that I go I want to get back down to just three tanks, and you know, and then uh, maybe raise one clutch of babies, and and I I did find a breeding partner on this clown line that uh, we're going to have on next week. That uh, mm, nice. I need to send all the the babies. Um, the possible hits that uh, you know my the the brother to my clown old brother to my clown touch mate um, he produces with um, a uh, western painted female that I raised so I know there's no uh, retained sperm so I'm I'm sending all right. the babies to him and uh, he's going to see if he can he's got a lot more space a lot more time he can get those uh, <laughs> maybe clown to come up out of those and, nice. and i'm just waiting for the day that you know maybe this clown will mature you know so far it's still a female still don't know whether she's going to be big enough to play um or if she's going to remain a dwarf right you know so it, it's uh i i just um my only interest is trying to just find out if that gene is reproducible and to have somebody else you know you do it because <laughs> It's so much fun. It's so much fun to prove out a morph. Yeah. It's one of the greatest things, you know. The first time I proved out uh, piebalds, I wasn't the first to prove it out. Pete was the first to prove it out. That's another whole other story. <laughs> he slid open two eggs prematurely and basically threw away like fifty grand. Oh, <laughs> oh man! Yeah. Then he went out and got really, really drunk to 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 not calm his nerves. Oh, 
But, uh, that was the yeah, the first I, I had 157 eggs that year, and the last one was a piebald, and it was about 99 percent white. Oh um, man! So it was. I, I think I stuck my hands through the skin and jumped up. <laughs> and that was a, a piebald snake. That was a piebald ball python. It was one of the first ones produced. In fact, it's uh, it's in two or three different books as as the model uh, piebald. Wow! It's in the ball python manual. It's in morphs. Um, all Python morphs of the world and, and one other book, I think. Oh. But my son took the picture, so he gets the credit. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and here, you know, when uh, four of those eggs didn't open up and they started to go dark and smell, I opened them up and there were four clowns in those eggs. Oh. You know, that uh, really? yeah, three of them stopped developing at about halfway through incubation. You know, they, they were only you know, smaller, smaller mm. than a dime. One didn't even have a shell. And then the the one that the egg was sweating, had I opened it up, I could have had two clowns, but it, it never pipped. Um, it, it was close. Mm. But then, uh, you know, the, the my clown, it uh, hatched two weeks later than its you know, normal colored siblings. But, and it, but it was able to come out on its own. But, you know, had I known how to open up an egg that wasn't, you know, right. I could have had another one. But, you know, you live and learn. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, did you, did you have any first productions then Al? Nothing of any major, uh, value. Uh, I think I was the first one to produce uh band, uh, banded ball pythons, but that wasn't much of a morph. And then, uh, I created the first, um, what the heck did I call it? It's been 20 years. Um, I don't even remember. You know, there's um, some, there's some 15 year old kid running around his house. Just like, Mom, can I get this thing that you can't remember the name of? <laughs> Probably. It was really cool looking. It, it had, um, it was basically uh, ivory colored with um, an ivory colored head and and uh, a Y came off of the back of the head and then a single stripe down the back. Um, yeah, it was really cool looking. Um, but I for, it was one of the last ones I ever produced. I haven't produced any in about 12 years. I kind of got, I got, I got bummed out. Well, first of all, I'm colorblind, so it's really hard for me to tell all these patterns. And when I, when I contributed chapter six in the ball Python manual, there were only five or six morphs. Now there's like 4,500 morphs. Yeah. I can't keep track of them. <laughs> right. no, there's, there's, there's way too many to keep up with. That's for sure. Yeah. And I, I literally have trouble with the reds and greens uh, to the point where I'm like, I don't even try anymore. I can't, you know, I can't tell orange from red. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> but yeah, you know, that, that little that test they gave you back in like junior high school that the uh, the Japanese dot test, color dot test, uh-huh. and, and they they show you they show you twenty three different plates. I got one right out of twenty three. I think it was black and white. Oh, what did you call me? What the Tetra? Yeah, and here I, I'm just the opposite. They, um, I was diagnosed as being tetrachromate, where I can see what you see four different. Yeah, I, I see more colors than the standard human. And when they give me a stack of, um, uh, I found I found this out in physics class, where oh, they, really? they they gave us we were studying visual wavelengths, and then and then in another class <clears> we studied sound wavelengths. Well, in the visual wavelengths, they gave us each two partners, uh, lab partners, they gave us uh, a stack of discs and he goes, you, you won't be able to read five to seven of them. 
and and my 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 lab partner was like um Leonard's uh uh um Hofstetter. <laughs> I mean to the T. <laughs> he was colorblind and tone deaf, so I had to be the one in the sound in the sound wave one to pluck the guitar string uh, or no, hit hit the tuning fork and pluck the guitar string to to match the tuning fork. And and then right. in the in the visual wavelength test, I had to be the one to read read the disc. Well, so then I, I read the disc, and he goes, "You read all of them," and I go, "Yeah." And he goes, "You're not, you're not supposed to have been able to read all of them." You know, he was a real stickler. You know, you, you know. Right. And I said, "Well," and so he raises his hand and he goes, "She read all the discs," and, and the and the um, the lab instructor goes, "You can't read all the discs," and and he goes, and so then he came and checked. He goes, "Oh, well, you did." So he goes, "Somebody hand me more discs." So I was reading all the discs, and he goes, "You know," uh, and he goes, "You shouldn't be able." To you're a superhuman. <laughs> you shouldn't be able to do this. Well, then when it, it when it got to the 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 guitar string and the tuning fork. Um, the human ear can only detect to a 0.1 degree variance, and I got 0.04. In <laughs> my lab, like my, my lab uh, partner, I, I was going to really freak him out because he was a really uh, sci-fi and, and comic book nerd too. And so, and he goes, you, you know, he started to shake. He goes, "You're you shouldn't be able to do this." And I go, "Don't make a stink of this. I'm trying to blend in." And oh my God, he started like, <laughs> keep that Krypton away from me. <laughs> He looked at me like, "Oh my God, she is an alien." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, That's yeah, great. I had fun. You know, I mean, he literally was shaking. I felt sorry for the, the poor little guy. <laughs> but, yeah. Leonard Hofstadter the second. That's that's great. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so I, I I found out that I mean yeah. So I go, oh, you guys can't see these colors, and so the my lab instructor goes, "Well, what what do you see?" And I go, "Well, it's the numbers just slightly a little more yellow." Then the, the, the yellow green, you know, matrix that, you know, it, it's hovering in, you know, it's, it's the, the number is just a tiny bit more yellow. And he goes, okay. And so he sent me to this eye doctor and the eye doctor goes, wow, I, you know, he's looking through my eye. <laughs> he goes, you've got the weirdest retinas I've ever seen. <laughs> really? Okay. I'm an alien. <laughs> What do you have, like super dense cones? Yeah, yeah uh, he said uh, th there was just um, so much more of a matrix on the back of my retina. Um, hmm. And, he, and he, he also said I had more, uh, he said, how, how well do you see in the dark? And I go, really well. <laughs> you know, and, and he goes, and he, he just, he goes, can I take a picture of your retinas and, and get back to you? And I'm like, sure, I, I don't don't remember him ever. I want copyright. I want copyright. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, this was whatever study he was doing, you know, um, on, on the university. It's like, well, now I'm a lab rat. Interesting. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah, That's cool though. Like, That's cool. So how much of my turtle do I see colors on that other people aren't seeing? <laughs> yeah, right. They're, they're, he's, and what am I missing? Yeah, he's so full of oranges and yellows and reds and, you know, and, yeah, and it's it's. I just love the clowns. The clowns are so beautiful. Yeah. So now, what clown do you clowns do you have? You have the Mitch line of your red ear sliders, right? Uh, yeah, Mitch Cowles is where I got, um, and he's proven out his clowns. And so I've got about thirty of those. Um, so I should. I think it's about fifty-fifty males, females at this age. It's hard to tell. Um, I'll know within another six months or so. And that, that's where I really am interested in is producing. 
I want to produce a clown that maintains the, the vibrancy from, you know, hatching, which when, when they look like they're fluorescent to adulthood, because uh, they usually dull out and become very mottled and not quite as brilliant and, and contrasting. Um, so that's really what, what I want to do is in, over the next 30 years, end up with an animal that maintains that brilliance throughout its entire life. That sounds like a fun project. Yeah, you know, something I can do. You, all these projects take five to ten years. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, it's just it's forever. Yeah. Well, and and I and that's with with my clown. I I should take it into the vet to get it X-rayed to find out if it is a slow maturing male, like um, what Mike Panovich was. You know, uh, his uh, Eastern uh, painted clowns. You know, it didn't sexually mature till it was five years old. Where. Hmm. Um, the het brothers to my clown, they, you know, they dropped their tails at, I think it was eight months old, you know? Wow. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but, uh, I, I incubated at 82. And so Mike keeps saying it, it's a male, it's a male, you know, it's just that it's, it's, it's slow to mature. Cause you know, you incubated at 82 and all the siblings, viable siblings came out as males. And so, you know, I don't, yeah, I, I just didn't have it wanted to spend $200 to find out what sex it is. <laughs> you know that guy I mentioned earlier, Bert Langerwerf? Uh, yeah. Did I mention it? Was that, I I've heard were we talking about him? Yeah. I didn't hear that name before. <laughs> oh, I, 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 who was I talking to? I guess it was, oh, it was somebody yesterday at a dinner. I'm sorry. Um, you guys ever heard of, um, uh, what was the name of his company? He's dead now. His name was Bert Langerwerf. He is a, he was a Dutch physicist who really loved reptiles so he decided to move to birmingham alabama and set up a farm there based on its latitude and its its highs and lows and then he um being dutch he already knew you know dutch and, and then uh, a couple of the romantic languages but he had interest in animals that would live at that latitude that lived in areas that he didn't speak the language like in china and south america and in Russia. So he taught himself all these different languages. He, he could speak 13 languages. And then he would, he would breed them. He, was, uh, he would breed them in situations that didn't require any additional energy. That was his goal. That's why he would pick them out based on latitude and longitude and the high and the lows, humidity. And then he, would, he built um, cages into the, uh, into the hillside of a south-facing hillside. And then just created caves and, you know, whatever natural, um, you know, accoutrements were required for the species. Zero additional energy. And he, he was the first one to breed stargazers. Um, he would breed. He's the guy who really popular, popularized with the pet trade, the Argentine tegu. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and he would raise. Uh, he was a, he's the guy who started the whole superworm craze. Uh, learning how to breed uh, zobophobus, and then he um, he would breed uh, hissing cockroaches—not hissing cockroaches, sorry—false uh, deathheads by the millions. Okay, what's, and he false, started out what's with, a false dead head or whatever? A false deathhead is a is a is a uh, South American species. I guess there's a true dead deathhead. Uh, they look a lot like, uh, the same, but they're wingless and they're not really good at climbing like the uh, hissers are. You know, they can climb out of anything. So he built these these trays, uh, the troughs really, uh, eighteen inches high, uh, fifteen feet wide, and fifty feet long. And he took uh, twenty of these false death head 
roaches that he secured from the, uh, I think, University of Alabama, and he didn't touch them for, for six years. And he figured he had two million uh, by the end of six years, and then he would, and he put them all in these troughs, and then he would go to the local restaurants and collect all their scrap food. And he would throw the entire box of scrap food on top of the uh, the layers and layers and layers of, of roaches. And then every morning he'd flip the boxes over and sort them out according to size. And he would come out with five gallon buckets of you know, large, medium, and smalls. And then he would just go distribute them to all the cages and feed all of his animals for free. Wow. <clears throat> yeah. Right. <laughs> and I mean, he he was collecting literally five gallons of each size every day. He must have had tens of millions of them. Just, I mean, just insane amount of biomass, starting with only 20. Wow. Well, Dang. leave it up to a Dutchman. And my mother's all Dutch. And uh, they always call me the, the, the cheap, cheap Dutchman. <laughs> figure out a way to <laughs> Yeah. He wrote a ton of papers and stuff, too, didn't he? Yeah, he did a lot. In fact, he was the guy who came up with the uh, temperature-dependent sex determination. Oh. He was the first one. That's, okay. that's where I heard the name before. So, yeah. so he's, mentioned, nice he's mentioned a lot. Justin Jewlander brings him up all the time on uh, his podcast, the Reptile Fight Club, where they take one topic and they fight about it. They're like oh, cool. UV, UVA, oh, UVB, oh, yeah. like yes or no. And then the two hosts pick a side and they duke it out right. over the topic, whether they agree or not, just to to talk about it. Yeah, Bert's a really was a really good guy. Uh, they sold uh, the uh, the business once he got out of it. Um, it was I visited him four times, and it, depending upon what day you went, you would you would get to eat whatever vegetable he had collected that day from the restaurant. So Thursdays were always tomato soup day. <laughs> Uh, and I, I was there twice on Thursdays. <laughs> he didn't waste anything. He made he 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 made his own concrete out of all the basic materials. He would you know get all the gravel and the the lime just to, delivered in piles, and he would mix it all by hand. And he was doing this well into his seventies, late seventies. I think he died in his early eighties, survived by his son and his and his, his uh, wife, who I think ended up going back to the Netherlands. At that point, because they didn't need to stay there in Birmingham more. <laughs> I don't blame them. I think I'd prefer the Netherlands over Birmingham. Yeah, probably. <laughs> are people listening from Birmingham? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we've hit Alabama yet. You'll know. That's great. Well, I want to do what my cousins are doing in the Netherlands, and uh, they're uh, you know they're giving very very low interest loans to these people to put solar and and uh, vertical wind axis wind turbines and, and mm. then uh then then they pay the citizens to generate electricity into the grid and so not only do they not then have um energy bills they're getting paid for the energy right. and so then the money that would normally right. go to their utility bills goes to their mortgage and so you know it's like god win-win you know why doesn't our country do something like that you know? It decentralizes the government too much yeah, for them, for our, yeah. our lawmakers. Yeah, it, it cuts, like that power. Yeah, it cuts <laughs> out the corporations and it goes back into essentially mm -hmm. public utilities. Is what, uh, right. So here it's like, uh, you know, do you, do you care for the 300 plus million Americans that could make money on energy? You know, that every one of us could become the uh, energy barons. And it's like, I, I my uh, electric 
reptile bill would go down quite <laughs> drastically for right. the, the tanks and lights and heaters I have going. But yeah, you should see our uh, like your our, our bill here is nuts. We have to heat. We, have, we preheat. Yeah, my gosh, we we preheat our uh, water so we can save on time. And we and the uh, we have what we call a hot liquor tank, and there are two uh, heating elements. Each one's eighteen thousand kilowatt or eighteen thousand watts. And when we turn those suckers on at California rates, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we 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 pull. A, I think our bill's like three grand a month just in electricity. Um, have you thought about putting in yeah. solar and wind? Yeah, we only need like two hundred and fifty panels on on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> There's room for like 50, yeah. so it doesn't really work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the energy demand is just too high, at least where we are currently. Well, those, those Santa Ana winds ought to, you know, you get hit with those up up north in Napa? No, we don't get those so much. Um, and when we do get hit with winds that are, uh, it's usually coming from the, the coast toward the land. And whenever it reverses, it's there's always trouble. That's how we had the big fires in Santa Rosa six years ago where just I mean, one night it wiped out 4,500 homes and it was racing so fast that people, some people just didn't get away from it. I mean, it was insane. It looked like, it looked like someone came into a neighborhoods and blowtorched cars. The, the, the aluminum wheels melted into pools of aluminum on their driveways. It was so intense. We had 45 to 50 mile per hour winds for like 10 hours straight, just acting like a big, like a, like a, you know blacksmith's furnace yeah yeah but yeah we don't we don't get the santa Ana winds up here that's further south uh and most of the wind is not bad so that's that is good yeah. Uh, yeah i know uh here in the black hills i know um you had fought fires that that summer i remember um on the mm-hmm. service but uh i know um they're they're clearing the roadways more so that the roads you know there's the it's uh cleaning out the escape routes so to speak mm. so it's uh yeah yeah because i i always think you know when when the, the conditions are such that the fire is extreme i put all the buckets with water near all the turtle tanks so that all i have to do is drop the turtles into the buckets um put the the animals in the car and head out you know to oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, this is crazy. <laughs> you know? It is crazy. We, we had to evacuate from South Carolina one time with the entire collection, plus our pig. Holy cow. Um, it was in 1999. I went up and I, I went up to Ralph Davis's up in Maryland and um, it's, you know, just got, you ever heard of the, the, the original Platy ball, the, the platinum yeah. ball python? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, R- Ralph was one of those, Ralph is still probably one of those crazy guys who, um, it's real extreme, right? I had not even met him one time before I ever met him. We, we had a we had a phone conversation because uh, this guy was trying to play two ends against the middle. He was telling me I was the only guy he was talking to, but he was also talking to Ralph about this big collection of, of uh, bearded dragons he was trying to sell. So Ralph calls me up and tells me what's going on, and he goes, "Listen, I don't know you, but if you screw me over, I'll cut your throat." I'm like, "Hey, Ralph, uh, I know you don't know me, but that won't be necessary." But that's how we started our relationship. <laughs> I'll cut your fucking throat just like that. I'm like, okay, Ralph. <laughs> wow. So I go up there with all these animals. I've got every single, you know, animal that I own in, in a van. My wife's driving a, the, another car. 
and I pull up to Ralph's and he's got um, the original platy ball on his screensaver. And I say, what's that? He goes, you going to tell anybody? Cause if you do, you know what I'll do? I'm like, yeah, you'll cut the throat, right? He goes, yeah. He goes, well, that, and he goes, it's not even in the country yet. Uh, it was a picture of the first one that was still for sale in, in uh, Africa. He ended up buying it. And when he arrived at the airport at BWI, it was almost frozen. Oh. Right. But talk about the, the uh, just how, how much, how fast they can bounce back. He, he's driving as fast as he can from the airport to get back home. And he's, his friends got it like under his shirt on his belly, warming it up. And he, he, you know, the thing started to come back to life. He put it in the cage. He said, he just had this weird feeling and he dropped in a rat and, it smacked it. Wow. <laughs> Damn thing was almost dead an hour and a half earlier. And, you know, let, an hour and a half later, it's eating. So you never was know. Was his friend running a fever? <laughs> <laughs> Some, and that snake became the, the basis of a lot of different morphs. Wow. Yeah, no, it's still popular today. I mean, yeah, the platy ball. When there's, there's what, 45,000 ball pythons available right now on morph it's market. Nice. So, right. Yeah, we'll see. That market kind of exploded with COVID, and now it's kind of softening. I mean, I'm yeah. sure you saw ups and downs over the course of your time in it. but Well, I wasn't involved in it during the pandemic, but a good friend of mine uh, who owns a big pet store up in um, northern uh, New York, uh, ever heard of Kick Kickballs? Yeah. Fred, Fred, yeah, Fred Kick. Um, he, in fact, I have a good story about reproduction uh, from about him, but he... Uh, he said his business doubled during the pandemic. Doubled. Wow. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he went from like two to four million. You know, he's never done that much. Wow. People and people had nothing, anything to do, yeah. right? Right, and they they found a pet, and they got themselves a new pet, and then they learned that they could breed these pets and try to make money with it. And right. so now we're seeing. Know your story. Yeah, now we're seeing. You know, this is the year that they could breed. And there's way too many ball pythons that even like the big breeders, I think Garrick DeMeyers said he's, he's like doing half of what he would normally breed. Like he usually has, I think he said, I I can't remember. I'm not even going to quote it, but he does like six or eight hundred, six hundred or eight hundred clutches every year. And he's only doing two or three hundred this year because he's just got enough. The demand's down. Yeah. Yeah, it goes. It's like every market; they go through cycles. Yeah, it goes through cycles. It almost died in two thousand eight. You know when the when you know we had the the big real estate drop. Uh, shoot, ten thousand dollars snakes dropped down to three hundred dollars in nine months. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a it was a tough time for a lot of breeders. A lot of guys got out. I decided to stay in. I shouldn't have, but I did. Are also right when we were transitioning into what we're going to do next with our lives, huh? Uh, I guess we're going to start a brewery. What the hell? <laughs> Move literally all we the way are. across the country, <laughs> all the way across the country, start all over again. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm actually going to be in Laramie in a, in a couple of oh, weeks. Yeah. Oh. Doing well, yeah. I've got well, basically just visiting for the night. We're going to fly into Denver and, and see our daughter and, and grandson son he's turning five and we're like two and a half hours from laramie I'm like hey honey you've never been there so let's let me go show you the old yeah. campus and you 
Yeah, be you're not going to drop off some African uh, centipedes on my door, then. <laughs> I might. You're only six more hours away. <laughs> well, only four and a half, actually, from Larry. Right. So yeah. we could actually meet up for a beer. That's plausible. Hey, come on down to Laramie. I'll, I'll treat you to some beer. I'll bring some oh, with man. me. Hey, yeah. Yeah. Well, we I'll- still need some. I'm drinking twisted tea. I could be having some good beer. <laughs> we have some kaleidoscope, some award-winning beer. Yeah, well, what kind of beer I'm is still it? I'm waiting for the pandemic it's to a, be over for you know my lungs. I don't, uh, right? Yeah, so I, I still have to, like, you know, I, I'm putting on a mask and going places where the doctors are telling me, you know, I'd rather you not do that. I'm like, screw it. I don't, I don't want a naive, you know, if if I'm going to keep myself in a bubble, I'm going to make my naive, um, my immune system too naive to anything that I run across so you know right. I, I figure I'll, I'll put on the n95s i'll catch i'll breathe in just you know oh i don't know 10 50 viral particles that are replicating that my body can destroy rather than replicating right. viral bodies <laughs> you know i studied virology and epidemiology i know what i'm doing <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. i actually got covid for the first time about two weeks Ooh, ago oh man three weeks ago it was not fun um you know, I'm, I'm, I've got all the boosters and everything. You know, we were considered an essential business. Thank God, uh, we would have gone out of business. Uh, but you know, obviously, beer is yeah. essential. Heck yeah, it so, is. <laughs> so we got, yeah, we got, we got the, uh, we got the uh, in my age as well. But uh, everybody in the business got uh, vaccinated, and I still got it. And it was, uh, I would compare it to a, a, a just a hard flu. But I normally get over a flu in two or three days. I, I was down pretty hard for about eight days wow. where I just, I mean, I came into work and I, I thought I could get something done and an hour later. I'd be like, I can't even think straight. I got to get out of here. Yeah. Did it go into your lungs or what did it do to you? It was uh, lungs, uh, achiness, you know, fairly typical viral stuff. I didn't have a fever uh, except one night I woke up, you know, with the sweats Uh so I figured I must have gone through a, a fever spell while I was sleeping, but that was the only time. It was mostly just very uncomfortable, you know, and hard to breathe. Um, not fun. You don't want it to wish it on anybody, but it didn't feel life-threatening at any point. Yeah, my cousin got it two weeks ago, and she ended up in the hospital, and she'd been fully vaccinated. And, and she goes, I think I would have died had I not been vaccinated. And Probably. Because our family tends to do the histamine and cytokine storms. And, uh, oh boy, really? Yeah. And, uh, mine was enhanced when they put me on, uh, Lororacil, a, um, a chemotherapy salve for what they thought was, uh, an aggressive skin cancer, you know, right up here, but it ended up being a spider bite from me vacuuming my ceiling. Oh. And so they didn't have to put me on, oh my yeah, they didn't have to put me on that. And it's, it's a drug that you're not supposed to put people on that have autoimmune syndromes. Because then it would cause and there, you know, cytokine and histamine mm, storms, which I never had to that degree before. So I, I was I was oh, in a life threatening situation for almost two years of dry airway constriction due to mm, God knows what. You know, I had to get rid of the horses because couldn't even get near the horses, um, or else I'd you know faint and die. <laughs> so so when this thing, you know, I had to quit <laughs> showing because yeah. It, Aww. Yeah, it um it was unbelievable, and now um, you know I I've been sick a couple times, a nice high fever, don't even know what I'm fighting, and and I'm fine. So I'm like, hey, I want every vaccine out there. 
because <laughs> if this was if this was COVID, uh, I, I want the flu vaccine. I want the vaccine to the common cold. I want you know, because dang, that was I didn't get the first time in a decade that I didn't get pneumonia. <laughs> so yeah, so yeah. Yeah, let your body do its work, yeah. right? It's 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 an amazing instrument. Yeah, so now I can, it will it'll work for you. Yeah, so now I can have all these aquariums. <laughs> and uh, but you need to you need to just get a get a brew mansion fridge. I've said it to you. You need to get a brew mansion fridge. Put all your turtles outside, and then when it gets cold, just go put them in the brew mansion fridge. Well, let yeah. them chill at forty five until it gets nice enough to throw them back outside. But the reason I have turtles is so I can look at this aquarium. And just- I love you can turtles. Have, you can have your aquarium in your house. They're so personable. <laughs> yeah. And I- then you can you can food train turtles. Either, you know, uh, they were just talking about on another podcast, like, turtles are super personable and they're trainable. Like, you can call them out with food and, like, so even if you did they have... They can stand on their hind yeah, legs. You can, if, <laughs> if you really had them outside, I'm sure you could... Get them to where you call them, and they come up to you when you come out because they're hungry and want food, and yeah. you know. My tortoises did do that, and and I have um, now most of all my turtles act like Jimmy, the one that made the national. Really? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, so I come into the room, and boy, he just jumps off. You know, um, my my current real genius turtle jumps off the. Uh, basking dock and swims over to the tank in the corner and just like feed me feed me now and right right into my hand and you know that's cool yeah so i i did promise you al that i would take pictures of that uh uh, national geographics uh, not national uh, national inquirer um story and and send you a digital copy i I, i've got to do that for you black and peggy I haven't. I saw the original copy yeah. the first the first time we went out on a date. Uh, you brought me back to your um, your uh, was it? You know, no, it was it was it was the second year. It was when you were working for the customer. Oh, okay. And and, and uh, yeah, you brought me back to uh, your your place and and you showed me that article. That was cool. But that that was you and you and you met Jimmy when you and Biff and Lin, was it she, Linda came. To, Linda, right? Yeah, good. Came to our trailer. And uh, you met Jimmy then, and I got a picture of you and Biff in front of Jimmy's uh, aquarium when he was old, That's um, cool. you know that big. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, yeah, if you remember Biff, oh well, Biff Burton. I can't. Re- I was just thinking about uh, Linda the other day, uh, but I I had not thought about Biff in a long time. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how East Coast Biff. can you get? <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. just sends me to to the Back to the Future movies. Yeah, that's, you're right. That's all I think of every Biff. time I hear that name. So, yeah, that poor guy who played Biff was actually uh, he hated playing Biff. You know why? Because he was bullied as a kid, oh. and he, he hated playing a bully. And then he was so good at it. You know, he was stereotyped. Yeah. He was typecast. Yeah. But uh, boy, he sure he nailed that. He nailed that part, didn't yeah. he? He did. Yeah, well, and and one of my uh, FBI acquaintances, um, he would, uh, you know, he he, uh, we had a discussion about who really becomes the bullies because you know I had gone through to five different schools by the time I was a senior in high school, and the bullies in each of those different schools were the spoiled, rotten, rich kids were the bullies, 
And those of us who were downtrodden or abused at home or whatever, you know, we were the ones sticking up for all the other um, downtrodden kids, you know, and, and it was, it was right. usually the, the people I ended up, you know, cause I'm nearly, you know, six foot tall, you know, the, and I would deck the bullies. I didn't care how much bigger than me I, than they were. Cause I grew up with nothing but brothers and boy cousins. <laughs> and so, right. You know, it's like, you know, a, a bully would come at me and it's like back off. <laughs> you know, and, and so, I'll go for smoke on and, you. And so, yeah, you know, the beginning of that movie, uh, uh, Miss Congeniality, where, you know, the uh, right. bullocks, you know, she decks all the bullies and, and then she becomes an FBI agent. So my FBI <laughs> acquaintance called it's funny you never became an FBI agent because you always deck, deck, deck the bully. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, Sandra Bullock, yeah. Yeah, she's a... Sandra yeah. Bullock. And you also you were also uh, a, a, a beauty pageant. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> what you, weren't, you, weren't you first runner-up? In South Dakota? Uh, uh, no, no, no. I. What, what was? What was? No, uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Miss, I was Miss SDSU. Yeah. Okay. Miss yeah, SDSU. Yeah. yeah that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, it, it's so funny because all around campus, I would wear my jeans and hiking boots and and uh, down vest and and so I go across campus and people are like, "That's Miss SDSU. That's how she dresses." <laughs> you know, because you know, right. wasn't, you know. He's like, yeah, high, high heels now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just give me a pair. Of boots. Didn't you sing? Uh, didn't you sing uh, "Desperado" for the uh, the singing yeah. uh, portion, the talent? Yeah, I, I thought so. Yeah, and okay. then, and then uh, at uh, Little Nashville and Hill City, I, you know, most of the songs that I would sing at that cowboy bar were were uh, um, Linda Ronstadt songs. Eagles. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So. Uh, hunt turtles and snakes by day and sing at Little Nashville by night. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that was good stuff. <laughs> Back in the day. Good stuff. Back in the day. That's that is officially the title of this episode now. Back in Back the day, in the I like day that with Alan Bosch on Herb Talk Radio. There yeah, you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, now, anybody else want to know anything? You know, uh, funny, goofy, and whatever about the famous Alan. Uh, Bosch of you know reptile fame, just you know. Reach out to Peggy at dot com. She has this. Peggy, Peggy has a few stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was a fun summer. I must have. That was a really fun summer. Yeah, especially when, <laughs> when you got too hot that one day, and I go, okay, yeah, right. yeah, you you go to the creek over there. Yeah, I'm going behind this huge big rock, and thank God I did. I had no idea. <laughs> what you were doing on the other side of that rock, but when the forest supervisor and the district ranger and and the assistant district assistant forest supervisor rode up on their horses, and and you were over there, and uh, yeah, we it was like what ninety eight or hundred one, I don't know. What it, was. it was insanely hot. Yeah, we, yeah. we hit uh, we we uh, Al and I were out mapping, and we knew like we're getting sick here. It is way too hot, and right. so I just dived into the creek, and then. Uh, you know, and Al started taking his shirt off. I go, okay, well, whatever you're going to do, you do it over there. I'm going to do it over here. And it's a good thing that, because the district ranger said you would, uh, it's a good thing I didn't see you because you had stripped a little bit more than I would have wanted to see you. at the day. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it, it's like, uh, um, uh, what was it? The, the, the assistant supervisor goes, um, well, it, it's a nice thing, Peggy, that you're so, um, 
you're so modest. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you don't have to tell me what he did over there. <laughs> Just getting cool. Nothing, nothing crazy. Well, we were sick. I, I remember I was getting absolutely nauseous and we were uh, trying to do a transect out in that uh, open meadow. And it was, God, it was, it was almost right. like a parabolic oven, you know, down in that meadow. And mm. I go, I think we need mm. to jump in the creek or, you know, I'm about to lose my lunch. <laughs> and that's right. why no that's why now I've got a whole list of volunteers that are um, uh, wanting, you know, to help, you know, in, in the summer and in, in rescuing turtles out of these drying ponds. Because I, I nearly mm. went through that same thing. I was out there by myself getting turtles mm. out of one pond, transferring them a mile down the road to another. I like, I am not feeling well. I could, I could, and it was like 101 out by nine, nine o'clock in the morning mm. during the rally this last August. And it's like, okay, I can't do this again. You know, I, I made it back to the road, but you know, and, uh, and I told Joel, I said, yeah, it, it was too dangerous for me to be out there in that heat rescuing those turtles. <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So now I've got a whole list of people that, you know, we're going to carry ice packs and everything to when we're out there. So, good. Yeah. Good, good, good. So, cool. So would you say a lot of your reptile business was what you bred or what you like bought wholesale? Like, uh, overall, what did it go through spurts throughout the times or like, how did that work? It, yeah, it definitely evolved. Initially, it was mostly buying and selling other people's animals until my breeding colony was, you know, sufficiently large. And then it was probably ninety uh, percent our animals. And then um, at the end, I sold all the animals, you know, yeah. all the breeders and everything. But uh, yeah, it, it it definitely went through an up and down based on just the age of the animals and the market viability and so on. So when you, when you did sell out your farm, did you do it mm -hmm. gradually or did you have an auction or what, what did you do? Well, you know, initially I thought what I was going to do was um, continue the, the animals when I got to California after I established myself here. So I found someone who I thought I could trust to take over the entire collection and it, all the animals, all of the breeding records, all of the years I'd spent, you know, condensing all these genes, all of the freedom breeders, all everything I had. And they would uh, get uh, a percentage of that year's uh, animals. And then they could keep all the animals that were produced after that and t uh, until they uh, shipped everything to me. Um, and that didn't work out because the guy was incompetent. And so I ended up confiscating everything and he had already killed half the animals and then i did the same thing with another guy who did the same thing and so i ended up with about a fourth of my collection uh in less than um, a year's time oh man and i sold and then i sold those to a guy who stopped paying me and i was already out in california so i ended up really taking a, a beating on the whole thing um it was it was disappointing that i had uh, that whole process just kind of fell apart, but it kind of, it was all, it kind of worked out because I, we're still in the process of establishing ourselves out here with the pandemic and the fires and everything. It's taken us a lot longer to get the business up and running, but luckily we, uh, we hit just shot. We were 20,000 shy of a million this last year. So yeah. at least we're getting up there. Yeah. 
we're getting up there and we, we've really established ourselves in the area so we feel really strong good about the future but yeah the reptiles uh, oh well i never became I never became quite as successful as i would have liked to have been and really there aren't that many people that were wildly wildly successful um i mean you know brian barshak ralph pete um mike will banks uh, mike mike and uh Bob and um Tommy. oh gosh who, who's mike's uh mentor bob clark oh, bob yep um yeah bob um field well, Tommy, yeah, we, yeah, Crestfield's a whole different. He he became. He's a different level. He's 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 infamous more than he is anything else. I I, I like Tommy, but he uh, he has people that love him, and he has people who want to see him hung. So it's all <laughs> all, it all depends on what side of the of the fence you're. On. I like Tommy, um, but yeah, there's very few people out of the thousands and thousands that got into it really made any real money in it. Yeah, that's and the ones that I mean, Pete had. He bought a, a sixty-acre piece of property with an eight thousand square foot home and four thousand square foot but garage and blah blah blah. Um, and he shoot, he had two warehouses at one time, um, fifty by one hundred foot warehouses full of reptiles side by side. And his monthly nut just to keep those two places going was like sixty-five grand. Easily, yeah, right. that's making it <laughs> right. Um. Yeah, he he uh, he did pretty well. Well, unfortunately, his, his wife died uh, a few years ago in a in a car accident coming home, and that really I think um, made it difficult for him to keep a hundred percent of his focus on on the reptiles. Uh, it's that'll do it to yeah. you, right? Yeah, yeah. I I know what it feels like to have the wind taken out of your sails. You know, with that whole lung thing caused by a medication they shouldn't have put me on to begin with. So, right. Did they take any responsibility no, for that? No. I mean, he, you know, here in South Dakota, they can never, you know, what, what the, they medical yeah, malpractice. Yeah, or? It's, it's, uh, it's uh, South Dakota. It's all for the corporation and, you know, and, and everybody, you know, how, how dare you have minimum wage, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. You know, right. so it's, um, yeah, it, it was scary not knowing if I was going to wake up the next day. So, you know, I, that's, um, but then so when the pandemic hit and I couldn't do any more art shows, you know, with the public, I got into reptiles, you know, and it was basically, you know, just out of, um, wanting to garden and, and, you know, create, you know, uh, living environments and, you know, and, and, and rescue. Cause I can go out there with Joel and do rescues and, and maybe we can do in a, you know, a, a nice assurance colony of our, uh, rare um, listed uh, ornate box turtle, you know, so I thought, what can I do, <laughs> you know, um, you know uh, with bronzes, especially since we don't have a foundry here, I'd have to travel, you know, in order to get sculptures done. And so I am going to, I, I am now my photography is wanting me to paint. So um, I'm going to be writing off the reptiles because they're, you know, the, the the box turtles have the cutest faces <laughs> and, and I've got some really great pictures to, to draw of, um, you know, one of my rescue box turtle that, that really gives me the, you know, my, my baby brother calls it the stink eye, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> so, you know, just do some close-ups of her and some really neat lighting and do some paintings and drawings of her and, and maybe donate some of the, the works to, you know, um, 
help with reptile rescues and, and things. So, I mean, cool. you know, so it's evolving and, um, you know, but I, I do realize that, you know, um, Joel and I aren't getting out in the field fast enough. Like, Oh no, I, I need to, you know, just tub feed these. And then, then I'm ready to go. I, Oh, you know, let me clean this tank in the morning. Then I'm ready to go. You know? And so it is hindering us from getting out into the national parks, and sure. state parks, you know, to do, um, our wildlife you know, photography. And, uh, so that's when, you know, I realized, yeah, um, the turtles have been a, a wonderful ex- expansion during the pandemic, but, you know, I, I do want to just get down to <coughs> lesser creatures. So if anybody, you know, out there wants a high colored, um, Southern painted female, um, let me know. <laughs> I am, I'm thinning my herd. It won't be hard to find someone, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. So just getting down to the clown and her brother and, you know, my trick turtle and, uh, you know, just those three would, um, oh, and then the, the female that I'm breeding the, the clown pet brother to is those four, those four. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, just trying to get my priorities, you know, back into what works best for our life. So I, sure. it, it sounds like that's what you're doing then too, Al, as far as. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I mean, I mean, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, getting up there and you only have so many years left. What do you want to do? You know, be a slave to your animals or travel and see your you know kids and enjoy things outside of this 20, 30 years ago. I wouldn't think twice about starting another colony, even though it takes five to 10 years to see the results. But now it's like 10 years. Yeah. I'd be 78 years old. That's not cool. <laughs> it's not ball pythons where you're pushing them and you can get them in two or three. And Yeah. Yeah. Or even Burmese, you know, I got into the Burmese earlier on, on too. Um, and you can get them up, you know, to size. And it's amazing. You can get, you know, well, the Barkers actually had a contest. How fast can we grow a, Bur- a Burmese python? I think Tracy won. And they got, uh, Dave's got to be almost 10 feet long. And I think hers got over 10 feet long in 12 Whoa. months. Holy cow. How did you how? Right. <laughs> Oh, just just about. Well, you would do. I don't know how they did it, but uh, some of it, it, it's probably the the, the old uh, turbo feeding where you get, you know, they they get one meal down. And as the first meal starting to disappear, you put the head of another rabbit into the animal, and now they've got a double feed because they'll just keep on eating like it's one big sausage, and you can get a lot more feed into them. Heck, uh, you probably know Terry Phillip up yeah. at Reptile Gardens, Matthew. We, I don't know him, but we've talked about him quite a bit on the show. And uh, good guy, Real, really good, sol- solid guy. He told me he got uh, a, a Burmese to thirteen feet. Oh no, excuse me, a retic to thirteen feet eating uh, small pigs in in twelve months. Wow. Holy cow! That's something bad. like that. It was some, something huge, and it just just I'm just like, what? He goes, yep. Just feed them pigs, man. They get big as hell. <laughs> see, and see, if I was going to do retics, I'd be like feeding that thing rats for as long as I possibly could every two weeks, just light feeding and not, no, 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 no. Keep it small. <laughs> Back in the early days, there was so much competition for who, you know, who was going to get the first morph out. And, yeah. You know, who, who's going to control the market for this particular morph. And the only way to do that is produce them first, right? So there was a lot of competition to get the animals up at a, an abnormal rate. And I eventually said, I don't like this anymore. I don't like pushing the animals. There's issues with their growth. 
There's issues with their fecundity. There's all kinds of issues that just aren't associated with normally, you know, animals that are grown at a normal rate. So I'm not really pushing the turtles. I'll feed them about half as much as they beg me to feed them, you know, and they will beg. Uh, I just, yeah, they're they're little hands. (laughs) It's hilarious, but it's, you know, it's like, all right, guys, you've had enough. I fed you four times since I got home already. (laughs) So now uh, on these snakes, did they increase the temperature of their living quarters to, to get them to feed more? No, um, just present, you know, food as often as possible. Um, I sold a, a, one of the first albino balls I ever produced to Pete. Uh, he was buying everything up in, in the early 90s. Um, and he... Um, he couldn't believe I got that snake to the size I did in, in uh, 12 months. It was, I think it was a male that was about 1,200 grams. Holy I got cow. It right in 12 months. That's huge. And then that's like a breeding it's, it's, female. I know, right? Most, most um, guys nowadays, like, oh, I got my male, and if he's over 600 grams, he ain't eating like for yeah. three or four months because keep him small. Because he's going to breed. Yeah. Right. So. That's yeah. You can you can push them, but I I don't like the ultimately. I don't like what it, it does to the animal. I, I think that's a big swing that's came over the hobby, and I think it came with ball pythons, and ball pythons have kind of made it go away as well. But that like first <clears throat> to the morph game, maybe it wasn't with ball pythons. Maybe it was with berms back in the eighties. But that power feeding in order to in order to breed fast, I think that's starting to go away just overall in the hobby. Um, Good. I still think people feed way too much. Um, Because like a python, not a colubrid, a python in the wild as an adult is probably going to eat like what? 13 13 meals maybe a year? Maybe. Maybe. So like you're every two weeks is way, way too much at that rate you know what's the yeah what's the longest you've ever had an animal not eat and then still recover um oh man six eight somewhere 18 holy cow 18 months months. it was a wild caught animal that i had imported and it would not eat and i finally you know how i finally got it to eat uh I used to trick somebody taught me. I, I took a flower pot and opened up the, the drain hole, a clay flower pot and made it big enough so the animal could come out and use that as it's hiding. And as soon as I saw, he goes, the first time you see its head come up, it's, it's ready to eat. And sure enough. I mean, within a week that animal ate oh. and when it went on to reproduce and everything, but it took 18 months for it to, to, to start eating. Wow. Yeah, I, and I, I've also heard like, with animals that have eaten anyway, and maybe it's not so much on the wild cob, but if it's eaten before, it's going to eat again. So right. Like, like a ball python that goes off of food, and you're... Yeah, don't worry so much about feeding, it, right? feeding it every week and trying, just don't even present for a whole month. Like, yeah, relax a month on it. Off, yeah. It doesn't need it. Like It doesn't need no, it. No, it really doesn't. I think yeah. uh, Nick Button... Who does carpet pythons inland? Inland, uh, inland pythons, something like that. Okay, he wrote the book on carpets. 
Oh, cool. Um, he he's famous for saying, "Yeah, I don't feed my snakes." Like I don't feed my snakes, and he doesn't in the winter time at all. Like so, so four months out of the year, his snakes don't get food. He doesn't have food wow. in his freezer. He doesn't order food. The babies do, like his grow ups do. But, yeah, sure. But the adults, no, they're they really don't need a lot of food. They've reached. They've gone through their growth yeah. spurts. They just need to maintain. Right. Uh, exactly. And that's what's really big in the turtle field too is um, look how fast I've got this turtle to you know um, eight, ten, twelve inches. You know, and and uh, you know, and and then you hear from the vets the biggest thing in the in the in the pet turtles is that they're obese and they have um, liver malfunction. They've already got you know mm. those liver lumps. You know that you can really see in their flanks and. Uh, you know, and I, I never wanted, you know, breeding hasn't been a thing. It's just, you know, I want turtles instead of really fish in my aquariums. And, and if I can keep them small, you know, I don't have to have such a big tank. And so, and then, uh, you know, because, you know, when I, when that clown was built and all these turtle fanciers, breeders from all over the world were contacting me wanting to buy it, you know, the, and I'd, I'd really be asking them questions. Um, they were, you know, like, this is how you get it, you know, to be about eight inches in a year. <laughs> I said, listen, you know, it, it's brothers growing like that, but this thing just won't grow. No, and then you got to raise the temperature to 86 degrees and you have to do this. And then it wasn't but a year later that, you know, all these power feeders and these heat and their, their males were getting as big as their females. Well, then their males started drowning their females. And in the mm. wild, you don't see males as big as the female painted turtles. And, right. exactly. you know, and so I said, well, why are you power feeding your males if they're just going to be drowning your females in the mating process, you know? Right, so, right. Yeah, I, I, so I, I'm still trying to get my head around, you know, the turtle breeding world. Um, you know, um, It's just like cows, right? If you, can, if you can get your head of cow up to a breeding size faster, one year quicker, by feeding it more, of or this certain thing, why wouldn't you? Well, because you're going to produce more cows quicker and make more money, one. which is what, <laughs> which is, which is what the thought process is here, right? Right. Because it's like, right. oh, I have one female cow, I have a person to AI it, but it's a calf. Right. It takes I don't know how long it takes a cow. I'm not a cowboy. Anyway, oh. it takes four years, let's say, for a calf to reach maturity. But you can push it to three if you feed this, 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 and this, and do it all this certain way. That's when it just strictly becomes an economic it, question, and ultimately we we have to find a balance. You yeah, know? it's more it's more not about the animal at that point; it's about the money, and that's. Well, right. I think that's, the turtle breeders uh, could save money in keeping their males separate from their females, and then accept you know, and, and feed them less, and then. Uh, then put the males in with the females, you know, um, in, in the spring when they mostly mate and then in the fall when they mostly mate and, uh, keep the males about half the size of the females. <laughs> you know what else, you know what else that would do? It would give the females a break because those males are relentless. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got, it's gotta be a stress on them to be constantly courted. I yeah. Mean, yeah. This all the time in your facial wants that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. 
I mean, it's a beautiful dance, but it's like, look, leave the girl alone, man. <laughs> yeah, that's that's that. right now. I have so uh, turtle turtle breeders don't separate their males and females like snake people. Not from most of them I talk to. They they keep them they keep them in there, and uh, okay. I was surprised. Is that how you're running now? Uh, I. Uh, I think it's a good idea to separate them. Okay. I think it's a really good idea, especially from the stress standpoint. Yeah. Just, you know, constantly, you know, they don't want to screw all the time. Um, it's a str- it's stressful. Yeah. They have, you know, they, they can't, and they can't come up with headaches. You know, you know, you know stories. And, I got a headache, honey. Yeah, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> You're available. <laughs> right. Well, and, yeah, and stress, I would think, would lead to less egg production. Less fecundity. Right. Ultimately, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a negative feedback spiral yeah. instead of what people would expect. Yeah, and and then uh, then also, you know, I, I have them you know, because they a lot of them know that I worked with a nutritional biochemist for fourteen years, and uh, you know, um, and what we were doing we were detoxing a lot of humans that uh, um, had pesticide exposure. <clears throat> And mm. then the whole family, their thyroids were shutting down, and um, you know the 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 young men in the family were their sperm production was down, and 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 I go, and so when the, when one customer called and potential customer, he said, um, uh, you know, she told me all this about her family. I go, are you sod farmers? I mean, what what because what she was telling me was just glyphosate. But you know, shutting down everybody's thyroid, and 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 the her and, and the, because her husband's sperm count just dropped back practically nil, and then they they had their their young you know their their sons tested, and their sperm count was really low. So now I have these turtle people that you know um, I'm coming up with all these infertile eggs. And so I go, well, you know, what are you feeding? You know, immediately what I do is, what are you feeding them? You know, look at look at your formulas. Are is it full of soy? You know, is it full of, you know, because even organic soy will cause male fertility to go down. Kind of come last year, right? And so, um, you know, so that's the the thing that I keep hearing from so many turtle breeders is that their fecundity is down. And I go, did you switch food? Um, you know, what are you doing? And 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 so, you know, that's when I started really really looking into the turtle pellets and and. You know, and finding the highest grade food, you know, no soy, and, and I go put put your males on. It's more expensive, but then just put your males on this, you know. And it's expensive up front, just like good good organic food is expensive, but in the long run, yeah. they have fewer health issues. My brother is a is a doctor, and he just like had a light bulb go off in the last couple of years about nutrition. Um, so he's like. I mean, I saw him recently. He's like, you know, food is medicine. I said, yeah, I know. That's what I've been trying to tell you. He, he got off of, he was on antidepressants for 38 and a half years. Gone. Wow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and this is, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I keep where I worked, we kept track of what the NIH and the CDC and, and then other countries, their medical boards and, and their testing. And the Europeans are so far ahead of us as far as, um, you know, what they call grain wasting disease. And this was, you know, even organic grains. Um, if humans were to eat mostly vegetable matter and then 20% meat like the chimpanzees, you know, the, the 
Um, right. the, I don't know if you heard of closest yeah, the, the, the London diet, the, all the, you know, here were these overweight, two diabetic guys working in the London um, zoo, chopping up the chimpanzee food and they're going, God, these chimpanzees are eating better than us. But like, well, why don't we go on the chimpanzee diet? They called it. All of a sudden, these guys really? started losing weight. Their di- they, their type two diabetes was gone. The rest of the London the oh, London Zoo zookeepers went on the chimpanzee diet. Chimpanzee diet, I love <laughs> it. And they lost collectively hundreds of pounds. They um, wow. got off, like you said, the the uh, the bipolar went away. The 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 depression went away. They got off all these meds, and so they counted how much meds amongst all the zookeepers, and how much w- they were off of, and how much weight they had lost because they were eating. You know, um, all these they, they cut out the pesticides because they they don't feed chim. You know, they they feed zoo animals um, better than uh, the, the organic foods so that they will breed and their right. fecundity levels will stay up, and the humans are eating right. all this crap. <laughs> And so, and then the one guy says, yeah, we've been trying to have a, a, a kid for like five years. And now I finally was able to get my wife pregnant. I mean, it was just unbelievable The you know, the, the London, so you should Google the London zoo chimpanzee diet. I and, love it. and this is what I was telling the turtle you know, community is this is what you have to do to, you know, bring the fecundity level up on, you know, on, on your turtles is keep your meals separate, feed them the expensive food, get their sperm count up. And then the females can still have a lot of the soy because, you know, it's going to have them produce a lot of eggs, you know. So, right. You know, that's what you can. Why not? So, yeah. It, Makes perfect it, sense. It, it is nutrition. Perfect I sense. mean, it really is nutrition when you want to, you know, have, you know, the best producing animals you can raise. So. Yeah, if you want to have good health, right? You almost feel like just saying, uh. <laughs> 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 and then this is what we always preached at, you know, at, at the biochem place was like, pay the grocer so you don't have to pay the doctors. The doctor, yeah. there you go. That's a perfect way to synopsize yeah. it. So, and so eat organic, get off so much of the grain and, uh, you know, eat vegetables and meat. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Perfect. Well, Peggy, do you have any more questions for Al? Before I ask him the two, I got a new one that I just came up with. So <laughs> he's, we got two now. Well, let, let, let's, let's hear the two. All right. So I'm going to start with the one that we, we all, well, if you listen, you know. Um, <laughs> if you could breed, okay. If you could keep anything, a group of, and breed it, it doesn't matter if it's extinct. doesn't matter the size. It doesn't matter anything. Woolly mammoths. Keep a colony of something and breed it. It would be woolly mammoths. Why? And any Pleistocene mammoth, a giant megafauna, a, a <laughs> rhinoceros, <laughs> ground sloth, a mammoth, though. I, I love woolly mammoths. No, okay. <laughs> now you sound like Joel. That's exactly what. It is. Oh, is that Joel? Joel saying, "Yeah, hey, Joel. <laughs> have you guys heard? Have you guys heard that 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 uh, that uh, parent? You know, someone came up with the idea of how to solve the climate." Uh, uh, problem with the woolly yeah, mammoths. Yeah, Joel's been preaching that for now. There you go. Way to go, he, Joel. He wants the Pleistocene Park to start now. <laughs> there you go. All we got to do is wipe out Siberia, get rid of all the trees, and, and plant a hundred thousand woolly mammoths, and we're, we're we'll store all the carbon in the grass. Yeah. Okay. Good check. Good good check note for me, by the way. When we do a Pleistocene episode, I'll make sure to invite Al 
on for that, and we'll, ooh, we'll make ooh, it a ooh, round ooh. table of the Pleistocene okay. era. Yeah. Sounds good. Yeah, okay. And what's the second, what yeah, the what's second, the second question? What's the second question? Okay. Um, if you could give advice to all the keepers out there in all the years you learned, what mm. is what is something you you would tell someone right away? Like the most the most important thing to invest in is the habitat. Do not skimp a penny on your habitat. Not on the controllers, not on the heat source, not on the lighting source. Spend all the money you can, get it set, stabilized before you put your animal anywhere near your house. And Because I used to do it backwards, you know? Oh, that animal's never going to be there when I, I need it. And you, you grab it, you spend the money, and you're like, I don't have any room for it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you're, scr- you're doing everything backward. So, yeah, the, the habitat's number one. It's, it's, it's how to keep them healthy the long run. It's how to keep them healthy from the beginning. It's how to keep them happy. From the beginning. So habitat, habitat, habitat. I feel like in snakes, it's kind of a little backwards anyway, because we're the people who will buy a thousand, two thousand, five thousand dollar snake and then go <laughs> shove it in a six dollar Sterilite shoebox. Seriously, right? For real. No, that's exactly. For real. Yeah. So <laughs> nice input. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> Do you have any well, other questions, Pegs? Yeah, our, our last conversation, are you going to come up with a, a sorghum or millet beer? <laughs> you know, we'd have to have a whole separate brewing system um, because it have it would have to be completely gluten-free. And obviously, you know, the majority of our stuff is not. We are doing seltzers. Uh, we're starting seltzers. Um, we had to get it perfect before we could market it, but we, we finally got it down. Uh, but other than that, no, sorry, no sorghum, <laughs> no millet. Okay, I'll stick with greens beer then. <laughs> Most of our beer is uh, hazy IPAs or, well, we do about, we've got 16 different varieties right now, but a lot of them are, you know, designed for the market, not for necessarily our um, our personal palate. Although we do venture into kettle sours that we've had a lot of really good success with. Uh, we've got a berry pie that has two pounds of organic blackberries, oh. raspberries, and strawberries per per gallon. Uh, it's beautiful, and it has a, it's a, it just tastes great. Uh, we do the same thing with apricot called a saracata, and we have another one called watermelon goza margarita. Oh, um, <laughs> and those are beers, or those are beers. Sound good. I like the berry and the beer. I'm not a super big fan no, uh, of sour sour, but yeah. but the, when you when you combine it with a fruit like you're talking, they they get pretty standable. I just can't I can't do that sour taste. You know, uh, people who hate sours love the berry pie. So you may I may make you a convert out of that. You may you may find that you really like it. And there's no gluten either, except for whatever's residual in the tank. We don't put any uh, weed in it at all. Um, so yeah, maybe uh, maybe that'll work for so you. Let, let's anyway. Let's, let's, let's do your your beer commercial. Come to <laughs> you know, the, the come to Parliament Brewing Company for the best beer on earth. Oh <laughs> yeah, in Napa. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Roner Park, California, just just uh, outside of there. Napa. You go. <laughs> there you go. Do you guys have a Facebook page? Sure. 
Parliament Brewing Company. Okay. Parliament. Yeah. So, Parliament. 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 Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a group of owls. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it was first used in the Book of Narnia in the in the fifties, okay. uh, and it's it's derived from the French Parlement, you know, which is uh, a gathering spot generally for civic issues, and we wanted to you know make our place. Um, a hospitable place where people could gather and just enjoy each other's company and a good beer. Cool. So we make, we make premium beers, sell it at a fairly premium price. Uh, but people don't seem to mind. We, we have usually a two hour waiting list every Friday and Saturday. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Of course we, we started with nobody. <laughs> Where's everybody? Why are they showing up? And now it's uh, we, 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 we won uh, an award last year and uh, things really took off after that. And uh, people are really starting to discover us. So we're yeah we're doing summer numbers in the middle of winter, which is wow. great. Heck yeah, heck yeah. That's Put really some good. money away. Fine. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Pay myself a decent salary. Yeah. As for the show, you can reach out uh, on Instagram, burptalkradio uh, at gmail dot com. Patreon still not up. I'm a lazy pile. Uh, <laughs> that's about all on that. Uh, Facebook. One of us two needs to really get a Facebook page for the for the, for for oh, this because there's no Facebook page and I'm lazy apparently or busy. Okay, busy with my kids as yeah. we'll call it. Okay. Um, <laughs> on, Joel. Anyway. <laughs> okay. As as for us, we'll see you guys next week and yeah. have a good night, day, evening, whatever time you're listening. And thank yeah. you for inviting me on. It's been great talking. Thank guys. you, Al, for staying on. Man, we yeah. forget that at yeah. the very end. Thank you, yeah, Al, my for coming on. Thank you. We so appreciate much. you very much, and yes. we we are happy to have you as a resident. Very, yes, very old knowledgeable. Herper. Thank you. I appreciate that. Happy to help. World. <laughs>